0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. The podcast is now available on the official website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com, where you can find recaps of previous episodes and more details about the show. I am your host, Tjasza Zeitz, and since I'm currently working on a series about AI in healthcare, I decided to share with you a podcast episode from the past. You will be listening about the significance of nurses. No matter which country you go, the predictions about the healthcare workforce estimate that we will encounter significant shortages of doctors in the future. It's less often said that the predictions for shortages of nurses are much higher compared to doctors. So today, the spotlight is on nurses.
1: Shockingly, 70% of nurses are over the age of 40 in the U.S. market. So we're a very older demographic. Um, And I think there's a number of reasons why that was. Um, You know, we had a strong surge of nurses into the marketplace in the 1970s and 1980s when still careers for women were largely undefined. um, And nursing was an excellent profession for them to go into. And as we've seen the last uh, 50 and 40, 40 and 50 years change, there's more opportunities for women to move into other careers that pay pay very well, that aren't demanding a day, night, holiday, weekend rotation with very little um, upward mobility. But also, um, if you look at a career of a nurse, the average increase of salary is only 1.5% per year, less than half of an increase of a typical career, uh, which is at a 3% increase of salary per year.
0: This was nurse entrepreneur Rebecca Love from episode 16, and you can find the link to that episode in the show notes. But today you will hear from another amazing woman, Shauna Butler. Shauna is an entrepreneur with a wide range of experiences in emergency medicine, cardiac critical care, international medical flight transport, and workplace wellness. She is an important member of the exponential medicine team and with her curiosity and drive towards a better health, she has helped shape and launch various initiatives from the Entrepreneurs-in-Residence role in the Netherlands, an enterprise-wide digital radiology solution, an international emergency medicine training rotation between a US medical school and the New Zealand hospital system, and the Cancer X Prize focused on early detection. In this discussion, she explains what are the challenges nurses are faced with in terms of working conditions and paving the way to acknowledge their important role in healthcare. If you will like the show, do leave a rating or a review in iTunes. It really does make a difference, since listeners can only see comments from their own country. So please, take a minute to leave a review. It's a great way for the show to grow. And if you're not sure how to do that, go to the webpage www.facesofdigitalhealth.com where you can find the instructions. Thank you. Now, to Shauna. Maybe just for a warm-up, you've moved from the U.S. to the Netherlands um, to be an entrepreneur uh,
1: in residence, right? So for the last several years, I have been spending a lot of time at health conferences, tech conferences, and every time I, I'm i always amazed by the, the the thoughtful solutions that are coming out. The pain points that have been identified. And the vast majority of the pain points have been identified by the people who are experiencing them. So a lot of the startups that are in healthcare, the people starting them have zero healthcare background. What they have is 100% healthcare frustration. And I love the novel thinking. I love the beginner's mindset. I love solutions being brought in from other industries that we've never thought of. And as I go to a lot of startup conferences and I see all these different headlines in healthcare, what I don't ever see are the words nurse and nursing, which is um, perplexing to me because so much of our healthcare system is run and delivered by nurses. They're an integral part. They have been from the get-go. So if we go back to the very beginnings of formalized healthcare Florence Nightingale was the boldest of innovators. She didn't wait around for an invitation. She saw there was a problem, there was an unmet need, and she went right to the front. And she didn't wait for an invitation. And in her observations, what she saw is that in the in the wars, she was at the Crimean War, soldiers were not dying from their injuries on the on the battlefield. They were dying from the conditions that were in the hospital. So she was the very first really to call attention to our systems, the conditions, the lack of nutrition, not paying attention to the entire experience of delivering healthcare. And she was creating data, she was gathering it and visualizing it. So all of the things that we're seeing in healthcare today really stem from a lot of the work that, that nurses did and nurses continue to do. In in the clinical practice,
0: you worked in the emergency space, cardiology space. Um,
1: how much of that are you still doing now? So I have been in acute care environments, critical care, international medical transports. And every time I was, right now where I am is over in in wellness and health promotion, community health. So thinking about um, immunizations, public health conditions. So I'm spending more of that time in how do we optimize and prevent, but in that the early years, it was really seeing people at these really critical moments. And my thinking was, if I saw them in those really critical moments, they'd have the, the motivation to make some type of a lifestyle change. So, for instance, we would see a lot of people in our ICUs that were there as a result of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And that was a result of lifestyle of smoking. And so I was thinking, you know, if they've had this crisis, then they're going to go back and quit smoking. That wasn't happening. And then I thought, maybe I'll go to the emergency department where it's it's a, an acute event, but it's something, you know, they come in clutching their chest, they're having a heart attack. Maybe I can convince them a life of walking, meditation, uh, better nutrition, those types of things. And what I found is that once we got through the critical moment, then they kind of would ease back into that lifestyle that kind of got them into a heart attack. So then I spent time over in the clinic environment thinking, well, at least they're healthy. It's not a critical moment I can affect behavior change there. And again, all of these things is that we're being passive and waiting for people to come to us as healthcare professionals to help them as opposed to us going and finding people where they live, work, pray and play, find them when they're doing things well, or when things haven't gotten to a crisis and to say, how do we support you in doing what you're doing well? And maybe what's that next step that you can affect maybe your children or your parents? How do we affect a lifestyle change, a community change? So it was in that early stage where I was thinking when I jumped in at the critical moment, I could actually affect change. And the more time I've spent, I've recognized that really doesn't happen. It it happens within our built environment within our policies within our lifestyle so if you really want to see a prevention of um, what we're seeing right now is loneliness we're seeing a lot of despair and it's showing up in opioid addiction it's showing up in antisocial behavior we're seeing it in so many different ways and we're waiting till a crisis to intervene and and I just don't think that that's really what health is that might be what sick care is but it's certainly not what health is and I think we're not engaging our nursing workforce as smartly as we could. You're addressing a problem of who you need to address
0: when it comes to trying to improve health of people. If you want to change the environment, basically this means that you should be talking to either uh, politicians or employers that can actually you know, influence the
1: environment people are working and living in. I think that there are a couple of audiences that we need to be chatting with. One of them is our, our own clinicians. So when we think about what it is that we do and the opportunities that we have to impact family, people, families, communities, part of that is, is a different message. So are we talking with policymakers to think about p- policies that are friendly towards families? Are we thinking about policies that support women in their childbearing years? We're also needing to talk with um Employers are one, and thinking about what is that work-life balance that we're trying to achieve. What are the policies? What are the environments that they're building out? A big piece right now. A lot of people are trying to figure out breastfeeding and putting spaces for lactation rooms. In
0: terms of life career uh, balance, you have the experience of moving from the U.S. to the ne- Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So, what's your observation? In, oh, in and, that I, sense? and I've
1: done this before, where I've moved a family to New Zealand, and so I've, I've. I've, I've seen these different places and how they are. I think what's really interesting right now in New Zealand is the prime minister who just gave birth. So the, as a result of the entire country seeing what that process looks like, uh, I, they will become a lot more family friendly. They are looking at making this the most hospitable country to work in as a female, as a, as a new mom. So yes, what have I seen? Uh, I really appreciate the interest in working very hard in the Netherlands and getting your job done and being very good at your work and at the same time finding a a breaking moment in your day where enough work is done. Now I need to pay attention to myself, to my family. So I, I see an awful lot that is in their built environment just to start with everybody's on a bike. And so just the mobility and seeing people actually move, seeing how their eating is in communities. So there's a lot of community work that I think, or or community lifestyle that promotes something that's very healthy and very connected.
0: Have you visited a doctor yet in the Netherlands? Have you done like, I'd assume that you would be extremely curious how nurses are treated, how nurses are working in the environment that
1: you're in now. So I'm based at a university medical center, Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen. And I have been in those clinics and been in those environments, not yet as a patient, thankfully. I I probably need to go and do that. Um, What I'm really interested in seeing is how these teams collaborate. And I'm spending time with the nurses on the shifts, and I've invited the nurses into our innovation center. The real interesting challenge here is that nurses aren't nurses innovative all day long and it's what they refer to as a workaround they see gaps in care they see gaps in a system a device that doesn't work as well as it should a data capture and so they they figure out how to make that happen i think the reason why they figure out how to make it happen is they're closest to the suffering they're closest to the problem and they see that person they see that family and they can't not try to solve that. Their their goal really is to help, is to, like I said, to be a witness to somebody's difficulty, to support them through that. And in seeing that urgency, they are pushed, they are motivated to go ahead and figure out what that solution is. How much frustrations do you
0: see in uh, nurse work? Due to the rise of new technologies and the rise of healthcare i t and the need to record data which at the moment is still not very user friendly it requires a lot of manual input which you know frustrates doctors in, a, in to a large extent because they're spending eight mi- eight mi- was, is
1: it twelve four, something like eight? four thousand keystrokes a day to try to get your <laughs> too your, much way too much so it, technologies are really interesting it's It's a double-edged sword. First of all, we need technology. There is so much care, so much demand, so much need that is left undone. And we cannot, there is not a workforce, even if we optimized every part of our system within workforce, process, procedure, we would still not be able to meet the needs that exist. We cannot meet all of those without technology. The challenge is that oftentimes the technology introduces more work within the workflow it's not it's not an augmentation it's not a support and so part of this and one of the things that i've been uh, advocating for for many years is when nurses and the people at the front line aren't involved in that systems development or that process or that technology there's a lot of missed opportunities to figure out what that workflow actually is and how this technology can really support them as opposed to coming in and aggravating them. So I mean, most of these technologies were never developed for clinical workflow. They were developed for data capture for billing so there's not something that really says we want to help you understand what the, the person's circumstance is, what their diagnosis is, what the treatment plan is, and how we're going to manage this while they're in our care and when they're at home independently.
0: When it comes to innovation and digitization, oftentimes you would hear about patients and doctors, very rarely about nurses That's why I found your description so interesting. So, entrepreneurs, how do you um, encourage entrepreneurship in this group uh, of healthcare workers?
1: Our current system, and I think this is true across the globe, is physician-centric, physician-biased, physician-led. And if you look at the care being delivered and you talk to the people who are involved with that, they will all tell you that it's really a team base. And it includes social workers, pharmacists, dentists, optometrists, uh, language therapists, uh, you name it. So there is no one person who does all of it. But our language has been it has not been clinician agnostic so for a lot of what I've been working on is we need to be thinking of ourselves as teams that we we work better in teams and so it's not any one particular discipline but to your point yes the when you hear when you go to a healthcare conference a healthcare conference is really what they that means is doctor and sick you won't see patients you frequently won't see nurses you won't see social workers you don't see pharmacists. I haven't been to any healthcare conferences where I see dentists or optometrists. And when you talk about on the front line, early stages, prevention, and at the earliest stage to detect something, that would be our dentist and that would be our optometrists. So we, we're not using a language that invites people into... The solution space. And when we say physician or we talk about innovation in health and we talk about the doctor, 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 I think what it says to other people without necessarily there being the intention is the rest of you aren't welcome. You're not necessarily needed. You don't really contribute to this. And I, my experience has been with all of my clinical colleagues, that that could not be farther from the truth. We really value what each other's contribution is. I think a big part of the challenge is because we train so differently and we never train together, we don't have an understanding of what each other's capabilities are, what we were trained to do and what we actually do. So I spend a fair amount of time explaining this is the academic preparation that nurses have. These are the things that we do. These are the things that we're capable of doing. And a lot of that mindset, there is so much that, that nurses do and are able to do. But because of the mindset and the language, we frequently, there's a lot that we're, we're not um we're not enabled to do. So that's where I spend a a fair amount of time popularizing this word, socializing it, that we have a whole lot of entrepreneurs out there. And the reason we have yet to solve so many of the problems, we've just been misspelling that word. It's actually entrepreneurs. And when you engage the people who are closest to the people who are the experts in the condition, otherwise known known as our patients, and the people who are closest to the gaps in care and have some really good insights about what those solutions are, when cost and complexity are low, we can solve a lot of this, a lot of it, we can do it faster and we can go farther.
0: Nurses are often seen as subordinates to doctors. You know, they just execute what the doctor orders. Uh, and on top of that, they are women. So in that sense, the majority is women. The environment doesn't seem to be very encouraging to allow them to raise
1: their voice or their concerns. We've got a lot of dynamics going on that don't promote and support the innovations that nurses are seeing. And to your point, yes, the vast majority of the global workforce, nursing workforce, are women. And across the world, what we see is that women's voices have not been heard, their ideas have not been supported. Anywhere you go as far as female-founded companies, uh, women's contributions to science, to the arts, those have not been acknowledged, they haven't been recorded in history, they haven't been compensated. So in health, and particularly in nursing, you've got two forces. One, which is the academic discipline, where there is a hierarchy and there is a level of responsibility. And then you add into that the, fa- the male and the female dynamic, it, it amplifies the, the challenge around that. I think from the standpoint of it being subordinate, I wouldn't necessarily think about it that way. Um, I don't. When I think about the clinical care, <clears throat> most of the, the work that's done in the sick space, there's diagnostic treatment, there's diagnosis, and then there is treatment. And that really is over in the physician realm where that's their training, that's what their expertise is. But when you take a look at psychosocial, when you take a look at care, chronic care management, when you take a look at family systems, uh, nutrition, nutrition, um, all of these places where we're thinking about the, the wellness and the optimization and the prevention, safety, those are clearly nursing domains where we have the ability to make a recommendation, to put together a care plan. And most of this is done in collaboration. So you're taking a look at what those comorbidities are, what, 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 what illnesses is a person dealing with, and then put it in the context of their family life. So nurses really have to have this really strong clinical understanding, but they also bring in the psychosocial and then also the emotional piece of it. So like a cardiology nurse really needs to understand the waveforms, the pharmacology, what the pathophysiology of congestive heart failure. But they also need to understand, okay, so we're sending you back into your home environment how many steps do you need to go up? Do you have something in your home to make sure that when you're ambulating throughout your home, you're not going to trip, you're not going to fall? We do a lot of work focused on fall prevention. We do a lot to make sure that people are safe, that they don't have, they're not suffering from a medical error. So there's there's not that hierarchy that says you need to wait and ask somebody to tell you how to keep a person safe. That's completely a nursing domain. And again, when we, when we integrate all of these things into our care, we just work better as teams. So there does need to be a chain of command where we understand, but the inputs and in putting it all together, we, we need to we need to access all of the, the intelligence and the, the training and the understanding of our pharmacists. We need to understand how social workers are able to put somebody back into the context of their lives. Nursing to really support that psychosocial, our physicians to understand what the pathophysiology and what the treatment options are as far as procedures. Um, pharmacology intervention I, there there is a lot of that hierarchy but when you when i see teams that are working really well together you don't see a hierarchy you see an awful lot of mutual respect and i think a lot of that goes back to can we train together
0: the book influence when talking about authority offers a, a compelling research where um Because doctors have the authority that can mean that once they um, prescribe something, that that doesn't really get questioned by whoever is next in line. Um, The book The Digital Doctor also describes nicely how, despite the pharmacist, the nurse... The dispensary, the patient being behind the doctor's orders, um, a patient got like a 47 times higher dosage than he should. So from that perspective, what's your view on how you can encourage innovation by nurses in an environment
1: that's so... um, yeah, you're you're talking to the issue around patient safety. And I, I think the book that's been written about that, that really speaks to this very well is Atul Gawande's The Checklist Manifesto. And what's surprising is that the innovations in there, and I, I hesitate to call them innovations because they seem so simple and basic, but the checklists, and one of the most important things is introducing yourself. So a complex environment is a surgical environment. And in that surgical environment, there's a lot going on most of the people in there, half of their face is covered with a mask. So all you really have is eye contact. If you don't know somebody's name and what their role is, and you're trying to communicate in an urgent moment that you need that particular tool, or we need to get radiology in here coordinating all of those things, a really simple piece is we need to know who's in the room and what their role is. And it's been really fun to see this this whole thing called the theater cap challenge, which is a nurse and a doctor working together. It's an anesthesiologist that uh, is based in Australia and a nurse midwife who's in the UK. The two of them came up with putting their names and their role on their cap. And, and that's gone global and people are using that and what they found is that it helps within the communication so that when somebody sees something that they see as a safety concern, they feel confident to question. So that a part of that's just human nature. If I don't know you by name, I feel a little bit uncomfortable to say, um, um you know, your, your microphone's not turned on because I don't know your name. So imagine that you're in this chaotic surgical environment and you can see somebody across the room and you don't know who they are and you're not really sure if that antibiotic was given or not, do you call them out and say, hey, you over there, are you sure you gave the antibiotic? So by just labeling and putting people's name, it empowers people to question and to to just to check. It's not questioning whether somebody knows what they're doing. It's all in service of, have we kept this patient safe? Because the patient can't tell us. They're, They're anesthetized. You're
0: addressing the question of how many very useful solutions are not digital at all. For example, when it comes to um, giving patients uh, medicines in, in hospitals, the best thing that can help uh, uh, prevent the number of mistake or uh, yeah, yeah, mistakes when giving out uh, medicine is if a nurse is wearing uh, yeah
1: a vest saying don't giving out drugs. talk to me, yeah, not yeah, yeah. interrupt exactly. Me. exactly. So, well, here's the interesting: it's it's the marriage of the two. So, with the theater cap challenge. The tools of innovation there are a Sharpie pen and a cap that somebody was always, always wearing. But the diffusion of the innovation was a social technology. So that got put out on Twitter, on Facebook. People started making videos and using digital images of that. So it's that combination of that convergence. So I'm doing this in my, in my hospital in somewhere in the States or somewhere in the UK. I take a picture of my team, I share it out there, I put it on a hashtag. We now have a user convention that you can start following different thought leaders or you can follow a hashtag and you can see what's going on. So yes, while it's an analog solution that's, I mean, no cost basically. I took an existing pen and I wrote my name on my cap. But it was the diffusion of that idea across social channels and using mobile media. So I'm able to be right there in my OR. I snap a picture of it on my phone. So I've got a digital tool to share what it is that I'm doing. So it's not digital versus analog or high-tech versus low-tech. It's how do we bring those things together and get that safety meshes. And to your point, one of the best ways to reduce medication errors are humans telling other humans, please don't disturb me right now. I am busy calculating this out, making sure I've I've, I've Gotten the right medication, I've gotten the right dose, and I'm making sure that I'm delivering it to the right patient. And I'm using a visual symbol to say, "This is what I'm doing. Don't interrupt me." But it was the photos of all of that. It was the write-up. It was the blog posts of those that shared where this idea was working. So it's it's, and that's one of my favorite things. It's not about the tech. It's not about the technology. It's about the impact and using the technology to scale the impact. Sometimes it is a technology, but I think oftentimes we overlook um, what I refer to as being on the cutting edge of practical insight. Mm. (laughs) You like to talk
0: about the reducing of suffering and the human contact that's present in the medical care. From that point how do you see relations changing in healthcare with the rise of technology? What's your reflection? For example, um, 15 years ago, if patients were hospitalized, they made new friends because they were talking to each other. Today, um, they are not doing that much of that anymore because they are embedded with their phones, which I'm not saying is worse than it was because now they can be in contact with their friends from their home environment, which was not possible before.
1: My hope is with the technologies, particularly one of the things that I'm really excited about is voice recognition technology. Capturing the data is really important, but do we really need to use our hands to capture that data? So when you are physically present, be physically present. And what that means is as I'm coming in to work with a person who's in in our hospital environment or in a clinic, am I making sure that I've got Eye contact with them. So, what am I looking at? Their eyes or my screen? So, how do we make sure that some of these voice, some of these voice technologies help us to capture that data, but they're capturing in a way that I'm still connected to the person that I'm caring for, and then I'm also paying attention to the family members that they bring. Who is their circle of concern? Who is their support? And making sure that I'm checking in with them. Are 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 you getting the support that you needed? So a lot of this is in that personal interaction and using that technology. When someone is hospitalized and they're in that clinical environment, how do they use that tool to reach out, to let people know, here's where I am, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I need. And I think that that's a really great power that technology has, is that oftentimes when you are not well, And you are recovering from something. There are a couple of processes that that go on. One of them is identifying what are my needs. I need somebody to help me with meals. I need somebody to help me with transportation, cleaning house, managing and organizing children, all the other responsibilities that I have. So first of all, I got to come up with the list of what are my needs. The second thing is then I have to reach out and ask. That's a crowdsourcing task. Then I actually have to coordinate and synchronize. Who's going to pick up the kids from school? Who's going to take care of my my project that I'm delivering at work? So the technology can really help us to stay connected to what it is that we're doing, identify those needs, coordinate them, synchronize them, and be able to deliver them. And I think for a lot of people that I've met who are maybe dealing with a a chronic disease, um, see maybe uh, diabetes and it's an acute phase, or they're in a cancer treatment and they need a different range of support, those technologies help them to one, not feel so, um, helpless. So it helps them to feel like I'm not a burden. And that's the thing that we hear the most is that people don't want to be a burden, particularly at the end of life. I don't want to burden anybody. How terrible is that? That somebody who has a diagnosis that they're facing a death, an imminent death and what they feel like is a burden. How do we use those technologies to help them to feel connected and to feel supported and loved? And at the end of the day, most of us, what we want to know is that we matter, that my life meant something, that it does mean something, and that people care about care about me.
0: From a practical perspective, can you think of a few solutions that really inspired you?
1: What, what I'm really enjoying right now is virtual reality and seeing people being able to manage pain, being able to manage emotional distress, being able to manage fear. So with the use of virtual reality, or probably maybe we need to refer to it more as mixed reality, people who are having to have different procedures done, they put the, the masks on and they are in another world. And through deep breathing, through following along and being distracted, whether or not it's playing a game, we have kids who are... Who are Cooperating with having blood drawn, uh, you're seeing people who are enduring um, treatments for their their burns. So when their their bandages are being changed, they can put this on and be in a place where they're throwing snowballs or making snowmen and it's helping to manage their pain. Brennan Spiegel, who's at Cedar Sinai, he's developing this whole library and it's called uh I mean his his program is called virtual medicine. And so how do we prescribe these different virtual apps or virtual reality apps so that people can have uh, their pain reduced. Or the other part that I've seen recently is pre uh, prehabbing people for surgery. So if you know that you're going to have an elective surgery, a hip replacement, you're going to have to be doing some rehabilitation to getting used to a new walking pattern, a new gait, feeling different, hopefully not feeling the same pain that you've been having that causes you to, to um, have to have that hip replacement. But in that process of getting ready, oftentimes people don't really appreciate what weight transfer is going to look like. Getting in and out of a bed, moving to and from a chair, getting in and out of an automobile. So before they have their surgery, putting on virtual reality and seeing themselves in this situation of, okay, I've just had my hip replaced. How do I get out of the bed and transfer so that I can go in and independently use a toilet? How do I get myself up and down so that I can go make myself breakfast? Really simple tasks like putting shoes on, putting a pair of pants on. There's a whole set of activities that are your body's going to be performing differently. The best time to learn about that is before you actually have to do it. So using virtual reality environments are a really good, what we call pre tool, in addition to the rehabbing tool.
0: I want to go back to the clinical setting, to the setting of hospital and teams. Clinical practice is changing in terms of who the authority uh, figure is. You mentioned yourself that the collaboration is different today. On a broader level, um, multidisciplinary teams are much more common today. Uh, The the approach is more holistic. We're talking about user-centricity, consumer-centricity, patient-centricity. How can you encourage entrepreneurial ideas from nurses um, in the clinical setting.
1: One of the areas that I think we really need to address is who the decision makers are, the influencers and the decision makers. And if you take a look at most healthcare enterprises, what you will find is a predominance of males and doctors. So they come from business backgrounds, they come from strategy, consulting, consulting. A lot of them have actually never taken care of a patient they've never been in that clinical environment
0: if I may just interrupt I I remember a story when um, nurses were teasing a doctor that he can't draw blood so he was actually he actually wanted to do it with one of the patients that was was in front of it I think it I think it went okay in the end but yeah it was kind of like a funny
1: competition well the person who's best at something is the person who does it the most. And I'll take a phlebotomist any day. When you've got these little tiny babies coming in or these small children or older folks who are very frail and there's just not a whole lot of meat on their bones, I, these experienced phlebotomists, they're they are magicians. And the other part, too, is that we have newer technologies that help us actually find veins. We don't have to be stabbing around in the dark. So... Those are like again, you were asking about technologies. Those are the technologies that are really, really, really helpful. They do reduce suffering. Imagine the anxiety. You're thinking, oh my gosh, who's going to come and draw my blood? Please bring that other woman back. She came in from the lab. She's been doing this for, yeah, that's who I want drawing my blood. And this idea that the person who's the most educated and has the most decision-making authority is going to be the one who's best at that tech, that skill, that logic just falls apart. So the person who's really good at something is the person who does the most of it. Uh, but going back to this point around who's making the decisions, who owns the budget, who has influence in that. And who can nurses turn to if they have a good idea? Like what's the go-to strategy? That's a real problem. And so the whole concept of there being innovation departments... That really is the doorway into when you've got an idea, where do I go with this? And there are so many ideas that are out there that, are, like I said, on the cutting edge of practical insights, you know, just got this, this simple idea. It's not always very clear, but, but one of the things that I think really does need to change is who's sitting at the decision-making table. And as I mentioned, what you will find across all enterprises in healthcare is that the vast majority of it, it's men and they're white and they're, if they're a clinician, it's usually a physician. The problem that I have with that, and the not the problem, the concern that I have with that is the vast majority of people who you, women use more health care than men just by virtue of those are the ones who have babies. They have more influence over the healthcare decisions that are made for their families, for their communities, for themselves. So if they're not at that decision-making strategy level, women's health is not top of mind for most organizations. And by virtue of having nurses up there, you frequently get the the clinical point of view, you get it where the treatment meets life, and you get it oftentimes from a female perspective, and you also get it from a perspective of how do we view the entire system and particularly focus on the prevention aspect of it. Uh, one of the examples that I use all the time is we talk about infections in hospitals. So we spend a lot of time figuring out how do we treat this really bad infection. Well, that's really costly. It's great that we treated it. We don't want somebody to die from it. But there's an awful lot of effort spent on the treatment of it. If we go a little bit further upstream, then we're spending a lot of time figuring out the technology for the early detection. Well, if you're detecting it early, you've still got an infection. But wouldn't it be better to prevent the infection altogether. That's hand washing. That is thinking about sterile environments, clean environments. And that's really where nurses spend a lot of time is in the place of let's just make sure that this doesn't happen. The challenge with that is nobody gets excited about the thing that never happened. We love we love the hero piece. And that's true that you know innovation versus maintain maintenance. We champion the innovation. That's the really exciting part. And maintenance seems to be boring. It's uh, the same problem is facing
0: behavioral change because we prefer, by nature, instant gratification compared to oh, long term. We, we
1: like our solutions proximate. We don't like those things that are far out in advance. When we when we when we talk about that, it's very hard to say eat this way, uh, move this way. Because in 20 years from now, you're going to be really grateful. I want to know what it's going to be like in 20 minutes from now. So, And that that's true across. It's not just health. When you take a look at our infrastructures, bridges, uh, transportation, roads, maintenance is not something that really people get very excited about. And yet then we end up with dams breaking. We end up with planes crashing. We end up with all sorts of problems. We have such an outdated air traffic control system.
0: Are there... Moments or experiences that you could mention uh, that were very significant in your nursing careers?
1: The first one was... I was I met um, an economist, a very well-known economist. His name was Paul Volcker. And at that point in time, he was a chairman of the Federal Reserve of the United States. And I met him because his wife was one of our patients. She had a very complex... Uh, Uh, long-term care issue, and we frequently had her at our hospital. So over, we we got to talking quite a bit, and he would be asking questions about her medical care and why we weren't doing certain things, and I would explain, well, insurance doesn't cover that, and as an economist, he would go back and say, well, I don't understand this, so we had these really interesting dialogues back and forth. And it was encouragement from him. He said, you know, I really think that you should go study the business and the economics of healthcare. And he had a real soft spot for nurses because his daughter was a nurse. She was a home healthcare nurse, as a matter of fact. And between his experience with his wife and then seeing the work that his daughter was doing, he was, he was somebody at a very early, earliest stage of my career had said, it's great that you understand all of this clinical work. I think in addition to transdisciplinary teams, we need to have transdisciplinary thinkers. So I really took that to heart, and that was why I decided to go get an MBA and really look at production, organization, supply, demand, but specifically the economics of of care, of, of illness, of wellness. And oftentimes the economics for wellness are there, but the business incentives aren't there. So that was one really big thing. Influence. The other thing is that I uh, got to do international medical transports for several years. And being that person who went into the clinical environment in some other part of the world, seeing what is a what does a hospital room look like? What kind of beds are they using? What how do they how do they organize their pharmacy? How does a patient come into the system? How does a patient get discharged from the system? Who are the teams taking care of them? What devices are they using? So oftentimes when we talk about global health, we're talking about looking at population statistics, what's the mortality rate, what are the immunization rates, what's the cancer burden. We're looking at big numbers. My experience of global care is in service delivery, right down there at the bedside. What does it look like when a woman's having a baby somewhere in South Africa, somewhere in New Zealand, somewhere in Manitoba, somewhere in in Europe? So it's really interesting to see global help up close on that actual delivery. What shocked you most when you were doing that? One of the most surprising ones I had is I went to pick up a patient in Edinburgh and went to the registration desk. So I had flown in from the U.S. and went into this hospital. And I went to the registration desk, asked for the patients where, what room that I could find them in. And they said, well, what day is it? I, I don't remember. It was like a Tuesday. And I thought, what an odd question to ask me. And they said, well, if it's Tuesday, then he must be in this room. So I went up to the room to find him. And he wasn't there. And when I went searching for him, they said, oh, well, actually, he's out delivering morning tea. So there's this really interesting innovation that <laughs> the patients were the ones who would go around and deliver tea. And they actually would come back and report to the nurses, I think you need to go in and check in room 13. They didn't look like they were doing so well today. So it interestingly created this this community of the patients actually peer support, caring for each other. Uh, the other part that I saw is that their IV pole was it was hanging over a pipe, so there wasn't a pole, it was hanging up on one of the existing pipes. So it was you know, the, the range of infrastructure that exists, the way people would solve different problems. Uh, I was in a hospital that was in Zexard, in, um, and it was in a cardiology unit, but it was a pulmonologist and a psychologist that was taking care of somebody who had a cardiac event. The other part that was really fascinating to me at that point in time was the way they did their clinical rounds. They brought everybody together at lunchtime. So they had the physical therapists, the nurses, the device techs, pharmacy, and they would do their clinical rounds away from where the patient were, but they they would do it together as a team and they did it in a social environment. So there was it, there was no stress around that. That concept of breaking bread together. Uh there was a lot there was a lot of power in that. So there were a lot of things that I saw. I mean, one hospital that I went into in St. Martin, the windows were open and there were chickens flying in. So <laughs> you just, you see a lot of, care gets delivered in a lot of different ways. Yeah, one one example that I can mention
0: is in, in some less developing countries, you would come to an emergency room and then uh, if somebody is with you, the doctor would say what kind of supplies he, he needs and the caregiver that's with the patient would have to actually
1: pick that up before the care gets delivered? Oh, Oftentimes, yes, when you come into a hospital, you bring all of your own supplies. I've seen that in parts of Africa. Uh, I saw some of that in Hungary. Uh, There are places that that's one of the way they control costs is around inventory. So what I have noticed about global health is that there are There are no easy answers, there are just a lot of hard questions. And every country, every group of citizens need to get together and to figure out what it is that they value, and what it is that they're willing to pay for, and then organize themselves around that set of values. And like I said, there are no easy answers, just a lot of really hard questions.
0: What do you see as the role of of exponential medicine in all
1: this? The ability to bring technologies together in a a convergence form, so it's not any one technology. It's how do you take 3D printing and make it useful in a mobile setting. So how is it that with my phone, I can take a picture of a finger that you've injured and from that reach out to the crowd, get a range of opinions to help understand what is the problem here, what might that solution be, and maybe you need a splint on that. Maybe we need to pull out some type of uh, foreign body that you, has gotten lodged there. But through 3D printing, maybe I can print that splint. Maybe I can print that tool that needs to extract that foreign body. And I can use my technology to reach out to somebody else who might be able to guide me in doing that. Or pull up a YouTube video, literally, and be able to figure that out. And it might be that a person can do that on their own as well. So people are in remote settings, but it's those exponential technologies really remove the geographic boundedness. It helps to democratize it so that people anywhere can get the care that they need. It allows them to reach out to get solution, to get answers, to, to help them in the diagnosis and to help them in what that treatment plan is. That's where I really see it's it is um, a democratizing. Uh, it's the removing the geography, and it's also reaching out to the crowd to help me find the solutions and the support.
0: The majority of nurses are female, so how do you see the position? Men ma- uh, are in who decide to become.
1: Yeah, so there is a an increase in the number of men entering nursing. And what I find is that they really enjoy many of the aspects that are frequently considered female aspects or the more feminine side of the emotional. And men are some of the most caring, supportive people on the planet. And when you take a look at um, this big, strong man holding a tiny little baby and helping that family through and really helping that, that, that new dad to see his role as a nurturer as well as a protector. It's a beautiful moment for a woman or do you think for everybody? I mean, imagine imagine the the strength and the comfort that that feels. So I've seen I've seen that I've also seen particularly with our military veterans a lot of a uh, lot of men who have served in the military entering nursing and there's a certain understanding that they bring to that clinical environment. They have served in war. They have been in those places. And there is a bond and an understanding that a male nurse in a, in a military or a veteran type of setting that can't be duplicated... They understand a lot of that, so whether it's mental and emotional support, and then some of it is just a physical size. When you've got somebody that um, that has that type of physical strength to help move someone who is injured, who 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 can't move, and just need to, to really just to pick them up, um, bringing in that that physical strength as well as the emotional strength. So there's there is there's plenty of room for anybody who actually wants to bring the. I think nurses really get known for their caring. Oftentimes, I don't know that they're really appreciated for the intellect and the organizational skills that they bring in, and they have any, a deep understanding of these different pathologies, whether it is uh, dementia care, diabetes care, oncology. There's that, like I said, that really interesting blend of the clinical, the psychological, and the practical.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health podcast. Very soon, a podcast series about AI in healthcare. Stay tuned.